Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. In December 1799, George Washington died after a short illness. Laid to rest in the family tomb on Mount Vernon's grounds shortly after his death, Washington's body and his legacy quickly became fodder for 19th century Americans, free and enslaved, who were struggling to make sense of what it meant to be an American and the nation's identity. Americans across the political spectrum, geographic divide, and racial lines use Washington and his memory to advance various political and economic interests. Some, like Federalists, yoke their political fortunes and their belief in a strong central government to Washington's legacy, much to the abhorrence of Jeffersonian Republicans who champion the yeoman farmer and a smaller federal state. Enslaved people at Mount Vernon, who never knew Washington in life, used their fictive attachment to him to sell goods and services to the hundreds of Americans who made a civic pilgrimage to the Virginia plantation each year. And all the while, Washington's heirs struggled with the constant stream of visitors, trying to balance their private property interests against the idea that Washington was the property of the nation. On today's episode, Matthew Costello joins me to discuss his aptly titled book, Property of the Nation, George Washington's Tomb, Mount Vernon, and the Memory of the First President. Costello is the Vice President of the David M. Rubenstein National Center for White House History at the White House Historical Association. And as you'll hear in this conversation conducted over Zoom, he and I unexpectedly go back a long way. Once again, we'd just like to thank our longtime listeners, recent subscribers, and folks just poking about for giving us the opportunity to bring you fascinating conversations each week. And with that, let's make a pilgrimage to Washington's tomb with Matthew Costello. Um, but actually, I thought we might start, um, if you would permit me, by telling a little story. Um, that uh, I sort of came to realize in the last few months, as uh, as we um, discussed on our some of our initial email exchanges, um, you know, years ago when I was a graduate student at the University of Virginia. Um, I was an associate editor for articles for the journal Essays in History, which uh, it's a little-known publication which folks should check out because there's some great stuff on it. And we we received a submission uh, for an article entitled Blood, Bones, and Soil, Virginia Identity, and the Attempted Desecration of George Washington. And we ended up publishing that piece. I, I've never forgot it. Um, I w- thought it was very interesting and very intriguing. And I always sort of wondered what happened to that project. And lo and behold, what was it about three or four months ago? Uh, you and I, Matt, were emailing about coming on the podcast, and we're finally doing it now. And it sort of clicked in my head that you were, in fact, the same Matthew Costello who authored that piece um, that I had uh, the privilege to edit so long ago. So I guess this is sort of a, a roundabout way of saying um, you're welcome for your career. And when do I get my royalties <laughs> for your book? <laughs> uh well you know i it just goes to show you it's all who you know <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> well i'm 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 glad that we've come full circle it feels like the circle is now complete uh that we uh that we can talk about uh your fully realized book uh that you published in uh just recently in the last uh about three or four months is that right yeah it was uh, the end of september last year And could you tell the good folks at home the title of your book? The book is entitled The Property of the Nation, George Washington's Tomb, Mount Vernon, and the Memory of the First President. So there's a lot in that title, and I'd like to get as as far deep into all those subjects as we might be able to today. 
But first, I wanted to ask you about uh, the origins of this project. How did you become interested in this subject? Well, the origins of the project uh, really uh, trace back to what you had alluded to uh, with the article that I wrote about bones, blood, and soil. Uh, I was in a graduate seminar at, uh, at Marquette University, and it was a thematic research seminar looking at individuals uh, and children, families, and communities, and, and thinking about how different groups create identity and what, is, what types of identities do they create, how, what do those revolve around in terms of politics, culture, economics. And uh, when I was doing some previous research on the construction of the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C., I had found this instance where in 1832, uh, Congress took up this issue of trying to move George Washington's body from Mount Vernon to entomb him in the finished rotunda of the Capitol building. And I decided to use that event uh, as a lens to understand 1832 politics. And uh, what I ended up finding was that this was not the first, but in fact, there were multiple attempts uh, to move George Washington's body uh, to Washington, D.C. And, uh, and there were other, uh, you know, pilgrimages and there were people selling things around the Washington tomb and uh, there were African-Americans enslaved and free who were telling the stories. And, and what I quickly learned was that I had sort of uh, backed into uh, a dissertation project uh, and now a book. <laughs> it's always good when those, those happy accidents show up. Can you, is there another example of an individual whose bodies whose body was contested as Washington's was in this manner? Well, in the, in the book, I at least allude to, um, you know, in terms of a national figure, a unifying figure who dies and how the, the nation uh, would have felt at that time. I mean, Benjamin Franklin uh, sort of has that feeling, but it's, it's still very regional. Mm -hmm. um, Washington is really the first to have sort of a national outpouring in, in terms of, uh, you know, wanting to remember him, his legacy, and then also having these different groups pitted against one another to, to claim his bodily remains. Um, I, I remember reading uh, some instances about uh, George Whitefield, uh, you know, earlier mm -hmm. in, in early American history as one where we had similar instances of pilgrimage and, uh, and people wanting to, to take things from his gravesite. Um, but I never really found anything in terms of a comparison with this, what seems like almost like a national obsession with George Washington's remains. Well, what's interesting about the book, I think, is you've got this tension between Washington's own desires, right, to be buried at Mount Vernon uh, to the place he had long wanted to return uh, during the Revolutionary War and then again at the presidency. But then this... Uh, this tension uh, with the idea that he is, as you say, a national icon. And he even recognizes that in his will when he says, you know, I, George Washington, citizen of the United States and late president of the same. And so you've got a, a really kind of a contest between um, regions but also and localities, but also the ideas of, of what really is an American and what constitutes uh, an American identity and what represents that American identity. Yeah, and I, you know, I think you're absolutely right. You know, Washington made it very clear in his will where he wanted to be buried. Uh, he also instructed his family to build a new tomb, uh, which took them 30 years uh, after he had passed away. So, um, you know, 
you can tell that, you know, he wasn't always listened to, uh, you know, after Washington was gone, you know, his memory was really up for grabs and, uh, you know, his family, uh, different members of the family had different opinions about how Washington should be remembered or where he should be buried. Uh, and that reflected the American public mm-hmm. uh, as well. You know, there were people that were more nationalistic minded uh, Whig party members who really believed that Washington was a national icon. He should be entombed in the city that had his name. Uh, but then you also had local politicians and, and Virginia state politicians and Southerners who argued that, you know, Washington didn't belong to the country. He belonged to Virginia. Uh, so just very interesting to see how different groups of Americans uh, are seeing Washington through their own ter- interpretations of what American identity meant uh, at that time. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between history and historical memory? Um, some of our listeners may not be familiar with the idea of historical memory as a, a field of study and, and what that might even mean. Sure. So one of the things that got me interested in this, this idea of studying memory uh, was monuments. And certainly there's, there's plenty of conversation today about uh, monuments. Uh, most of the conversation revolves around mon- monuments of the Confederate leaders and, uh, and whether or not these should still be standing or should they be in a museum or should they be at a Confederate cemetery. And, uh, you know, it, when you have to dig a little bit deeper into it, you know, even that monument has a history. And um, you start asking questions like, well, who designed it? Uh, when was it installed? Who was the sculpturer? Uh, why did they use that engraving? Why did they pick this figure or the, this imagery? And, and what you learn is that these people who were historical actors in their own time were creating a history to be publicly consumed. And what they envisioned, what was important to remember, who was important to honor, uh, you know, that changes over time. Sure. Uh, you know, history is the study of change over time. Uh, it works the same way with memory because you're going to have people who believe that this particular history is important and everybody should know it. And then you're going to have other groups that say, uh, well, these histories are important too. So how do we find ways to integrate these, to make it more inclusive, mm-hmm. to make it more comprehensive. Um, so memory can be very fluid. Uh, it can change very quickly. And, uh, and when we look at things like monuments, plaque markers, um, these things that really give us a snapshot, not only of the historical person or event that it's commemorating, but it also tells us more about the times in which those things were created. So earlier you alluded to the 1830s uh, as a time when uh, governments were contesting Washington's memory and competing for his body, but uh, then you said that you actually found evidence of that beginning almost at the moment of his his passing. And so can you you take us back to that moment uh, late in the 18th century, on the on the cusp of the 19th century, when Washington dies, and then uh, there is a, a a real contest between the federal government and Virginia for where Washington is going to lie and repose for eternity. Uh, and, we, you know, we can't get, forget the fact that the family is also involved here. They have their own ideas about what's going on. But you know, how, do, how, does this, uh, how does his passing reveal, you know, real tension between Virginians and the federal government? So uh, Washington passes away on December 14, 1799. His funeral is held at Mount Vernon four days later. 
And uh, on Christmas Eve, 1799, when John Adams sends his letter of condolence, but also congressional resolutions that had been passed, essentially asking Martha Washington for permission to move her husband's body in the future to be entombed in the nation's capital, uh, which is pretty remarkable that in a span of only 10 days, uh, you know, they reached this conclusion about where somebody like George Washington should be buried. Now, Martha decides to agree and she consents to this, but uh, she also adds a stipulation about not wanting to be separated from him. Uh, so in a way, she sort of secures her place uh, in, in whatever this uh, this national sepulcher will look like in the future when it's actually done, that George and Martha will be together. Um, now, keep in mind that this is 1799. Um, you know, they haven't even left Philadelphia yet for Washington, D.C. So the idea of talking about Washington being entombed in the Capitol is very much, uh, you know, a pipe dream. Sure. Uh, in fact, they won't even finish the rotunda uh, where he was supposed to be buried until the 1820s. So this idea of sort of getting out immediately during this moment of national grief and, uh, and when there was unison over uh, supporting the country and supporting Washington and his legacy, uh, Federalist leaders, you know, really are quick to the punch to move uh, and get consent from Martha Washington that in the future, George Washington will be entombed in the city that bears his name. Is, is that uh, also a reflection of the Federalist feeling threatened by you know, rising Repu- Democratic Republicans and feeling you know, threatened uh, politically uh, and also wanting to sort of cement uh, a Federalist ideology uh, through the memory of Washington? Absolutely. Uh, because, you know, about a year later, in the election of 1800, I mean, that's when Federalists uh, lose uh, quite a few seats. They lose their majorities to the Democratic Republicans who have a very different idea about how people like Washington and heroes should be revered. Uh, they, you know, they don't see it as we should build a, a national uh, mausoleum or tomb for any one figure, but that the revolution was fought by thousands and people from all sorts of backgrounds. It's, it's much more democratic in a way. Sure. And this idea of, you know, using Washington as sort of a political shield, uh, the Republicans are also well aware of that. So they have to be very careful uh, to criticize how Federalists are doing this without appearing to be disrespectful to Washington or, or what he did for the country. But, you know, they make a valid argument. They say that, you know, the revolution was fought by many, uh, and you know Washington wouldn't have wanted something like this. This this wasn't the country that he fought for. And Federalists, who really see their power in decline, are are trying to leverage the Washington symbol to help buttress their political support. And I think ultimately it fails uh, because I mean there were wider political changes in in the winds happening anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after after time, you know people. I think people develop a sense about, you know, was this what Washington would have really wanted? Um, Is this the legacy that he would have wanted the American people to remember him by? Uh, I think that probably the most notable example I found was uh, Benjamin Henry Latrobe, the English trained architect, had designed uh, what looked like a pyramidal mausoleum 
which would have been placed in Washington, D.C. It would have been probably the tallest building in the nation's capital if it had been built. Wow. And, uh, and there were some great lines where people say, you know, this isn't Egypt. Uh, Washington <laughs> wasn't a pharaoh. Yeah. Um, you know, we're supposed to be different. Uh, so I think it's really interesting that Washington becomes the test case to see how will Americans worship their heroes mm-hmm. and how will they treat their bodily remains? Uh, because it, it's very different, you know, from England or from France, uh, you know, countries that are older, but they also have national sites of repose for national heroes. Do you think that the the tension was worse uh, in part because the Republic is, is, you know, is 10 years out from being uh, put on a firmer footing with the Constitution. Uh, do you think that the circumstances of his death in that particular moment made that tension all the more worse? You know, there, there was talk at a time about Washington staying in office for a third term. And, he, you know, he didn't agree with the idea that, you know, any person should stay longer than two terms in office. But I think most people tend to forget by the time of the second term, uh, you know, even even George Washington, the symbol, uh, was being attacked, mm-hmm. uh, was being criticized, uh, and it wasn't just about policy. I mean, it was about his character. It was about questioning his ideals and his principles. And you know, Washington had spent so much of his adult life in service, uh, either to the United States or to the colonies. Um, and I, you know, frankly, I think he just you know, he was tired. Yeah. I mean, he wanted to go home. He, he wanted to retire and he felt like he had, he had carried this country as far as he could and that it was time to step, you know, step aside mm-hmm. and let someone else pick up the mantle. Now, even when he's in retirement, Washington is still reading newspapers. He's still writing letters. He's still making comments about, uh, you know, his successors policies. Uh, and in fact, you know, Adams even calls him in the service uh, in the event the United States fights France in the Quasi War. So he's never really fully retired. Um, <laughs> so even though he leaves the national stage, he's very much trapped, I think, by this persona. Yeah. He, he just, he can't escape it. And even when he's at Mount Vernon, he's, him and Martha are besieged by people who, who want to meet him, who want to speak with him. And, and he, he welcomes a lot of these people. He welcome, welcomes them into his home. Um, they share meals. Uh, they spend the night. Uh, in fact, there's very few days that him and Martha are dining alone. Uh, it seems like they always have company. And as politics grew more divisive and more bitter, I don't know, I, you know, you can't help but think that there's something sort of poetic uh, in the idea that you know, Washington passes away literally right on the cusp of the 19th century. And, uh, and it, and it was almost like, um, he was a man of the, he was a man of that age, the 18th century. Uh, so to have him leave it in the 18th century, uh, and, and, you know, there were questions about how, how will the United States survive without someone like Washington? Mm -hmm. Uh, well, we're going to find out because that's what the 19th century is going to be. (laughs) And, uh, you know, Washington, Jefferson, Adams, Monroe, they all had some foresight about, you know, and I think they all, there was some agreement that even though they maybe didn't directly confront the issue, but that slavery 
um, was was going to be something that was not going to leave the country readily easily, and that at some point there was going to be a conflict over slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they didn't see it in their lifetimes, but they all they all seem to get the sense that this was going to be something that there would be a reckoning. Sure. Yeah, something was coming down the road, whether they liked it or not. Well, you mentioned the fact that, that George and Martha entertained uh, frequently at Mount Vernon. You know, we have accounts of of people traveling down to Mount Vernon to, you know, meet uh, the Washingtons. They stayed in their homes. They dined with them. And the Washingtons entertaining them was a part of a, of the cultural norm in that period. Uh, but after he dies, especially after Martha dies, and as the federal government and uh, Virginia and Americans writ large are sort of contesting Washington's memory, what's the reaction of the family who comes into possession of Mount Vernon? Are are they as welcoming as uh, George and Martha were to all of these visitors who now especially want to make a pilgrimage now that uh, Washington is dead? Or do they have a different attitude about um, uh, how people are interpreting or wishing to take part in the celebration of Washington's life? Well, they have a very different attitude. Uh, in fact, I would say pretty much a, a 180 <laughs> in terms of uh, welcoming people and opening their doors. And, and, you know, it's not to say that, you know, Bushrod and, and Julia Blackburn Washington didn't do those things, uh, but there were rules. Uh, one of the things that I noticed was that Bushrod uh, required a letter of introduction. So if you wanted to get into the mansion, either you had to know him or, or his family or essentially have a letter of introduction from somebody else who knew them uh, to get in. And, and that was a way to really limit the foot traffic coming into the house. Mm-hmm. Now, Bushrod couldn't really do that with the grounds. Uh, there, there's some records where he is putting up sort of like notices of trespassing and things like that. But, you know, he really can't prevent people from sort of stumbling their way onto the Mount Vernon grounds and, uh, and wandering around because they want to learn more about Washington's world and, and see the tomb. Uh, and I think that's a big reason why, uh, you know, when people visit Mount Vernon today, uh, you know, they go to see the mansion, right? Uh, right. That's, that's kind of like the big attraction is to see George Washington's home. But in the 19th century, people were still living in it. So, um, and, and they had rules about who could go in and who couldn't. So uh, the difference here was that in the 19th century, you know, the key attraction was the tomb. And, and I think, yes, it's because Washington is so significant uh, to 19th century Americans, but this was a place where they could actually have uh, an experience, um, you know, remembering him, uh, honoring his legacy, uh, and they could actually do it in hand mm-hmm. and, and, you know, take things from the gravesite as well. Uh, you know, that wasn't something that, you know, you could do. Um, if you didn't know the Bushrod family uh, too well. Sure. Well, I mean, one of the things that was so interesting about your book was that you could see on the landscape how uh, the broader conversation about what is public property and what is private property is taking place right there on the estate. I mean, as you said, Bushrod, Washington, uh, you know, Supreme Court Justice, he very much believes that only certain people should gain entry into the mansion and that for everyone else, it's, it's for all intents and purposes closed but he can't stop people from coming on the grounds. And so you've got this uh, sort of private sphere directly adjacent to a, or in the, right in the middle of a very public sphere and public facing place that, that he has little control over, but 
he has no real intention at this moment uh, to uh, monetize. Yeah, and I, you know, I also think that, um, you know, in Bushrod's defense, um, you know, he he's George Washington's nephew. He's a Supreme Court Associate Justice. Uh, he inherited this property after Martha died because George and Martha didn't have any children. Um, so you know, it, it wasn't really it wasn't really his home. Mm-hmm. You know, he he hadn't grown up there, um, and he spent a lot of time away. Uh, you know, at court. So uh, for him, he saw it as this was his residence. It was a private residence, and you know, George Washington didn't live there anymore. So people needed to recognize that he was the legitimate property owner, mm-hmm. and they needed to respect some privacy. Sure, um, but you know. This continues beyond Bushrod Washington. Uh, the property then goes to his nephew, John Augustine Washington Jr., who's who's only there for about two and a half years before he dies. And then it goes to John Augustine Washington Jr.'s wife, Jane Charlotte Blackburn. And she owns the property then until she passes away in the 1850s. But she has her son, John Augustine Washington III, start running the property for her in the 1840s. Now, he's really the first Washington, I would say, who really tries to capitalize on people uh, who just keep coming to Mount Vernon, and there's really no way to stop them. Um, he enters into a contract uh, with the Alexandria Washington Steamboat Company uh, uh, because you know steamboats started dropping people off in Mount Vernon. Sure, uh, you know today you go to Mount Vernon, you see the wharf. Uh, you can even take the spirit of Mount Vernon down if you want to. Uh, there's a precedent for that. And yeah. it was because these, these steamboat lines were really successful in the 19th century, getting people from the wharf up in D.C. Uh, down the river, you know, 15 miles to Mount Vernon. It was very scenic. They offered all types of amusements and music and confectionery, sometimes even liquors. Uh, and, and, you know, it was, it was sort of like a, a pleasure cruise for many people. And I think John Augustine Washington III saw it as, you know, people are making money off George Washington's memory. So shouldn't the Washington family benefit somehow from that? And, and he actually, he, he, even though it, it sounds bad uh, because, you know, he, he also steps into profit from it as well, but he starts encouraging more people to come, more people to experience Mount Vernon and to go see the tomb. Um, he'll even let people come in and sign uh, the guest book. So he, he relaxes some of the restrictions. Um, so in a way, he makes Washington's world more accessible, mm-hmm. and more readily available to people. And it, would you say it's through these actions that Washington uh, becomes more accessible to the quote-unquote common man? Well, yeah, I, I think uh, the, the actual ability to, to go and to visit, see the tomb, and because there are these different modes of transportation that are more affordable, uh, they can get people there in a relatively quick amount of time, uh, in a relatively quick amount of time. And, I, you know, there's also other things that are happening that are making Washington more akin to the common man. I think a big part of it is uh, visual culture, how the tomb is being portrayed by Hudson River School artists uh, in engravings and etchings. Uh, I think another big part of it is just how Washington is being written about. So the historians of the 19th century who are writing about Washington, uh, probably the most famous, uh, Mason Locke Weems, who does a really good job of, of making Washington sound more relatable mm-hmm. uh, to the common man. And I, I think all of these things are sort of working together. 
to to transform Washington, who was this symbol of republicanism, uh, into a symbol of democracy. Because I mean, that's the major political movement of the 19th century. Uh, this country moves from being a republic to a democracy, and uh, and you know your symbols have to change as well, right? And uh, the history may not necessarily change, but the memory of that history has to change. Sure. Well, that's one of the things I found particularly interesting about your book. I mean, I, in the introduction, you, you lay out the nice case of uh, of how Washington becomes this sort of symbolic figure of the common man, but making it very clear that uh, you know he he was somebody who, as you said, was a small R Republican who thought thought that the 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 best men should lead and that uh, the lower classes should defer to their social betters and that. Uh, even going so far as to be laying out the case you know, that he thought the militia was terrible during the revolution, and you know he thought democracy was essentially mobocracy, and yet in the 19th century and the rise of American democracy, he becomes uh, he becomes associated with um, Joe Schmo, yeoman farmer, um, you know, in in Southside Virginia. <laughs> well, and I and I think also a big part of it is uh, you know it's tied into the election of Andrew Jackson. And I think, you know, Jackson supporters being able to really bill Jackson as sort of the second George Washington, um, you know, this idea that he is, uh, he's, he's from the frontier. He, he fought the Redcoats in the revolution. Um, he's been a general, he's led all different types of people in battle. Um, you know, he, he doesn't like corruption. And I mean, so that they're able to make all these different threaded connections and, and making Jackson, who I think most people that they think of as the epitome of the common man's hero, the common folk president. Uh, and they're able to sort of repackage Washington um, and, and link the two together, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also see it with Lincoln, um, you know, even though Lincoln is assassinated, so a very different fate uh, for those two leaders. But there's this immediate outpouring after Lincoln's death of connecting him with George Washington as really sort of the, the on the one hand, Washington, the creator of the Union, Lincoln, uh, the, the savior of the Union, the preserver of the Union. Um, so it's really interesting even to see not only when we're just talking about Washington, but then how uh, Americans at different moments of time are using Washington's memory uh, to either further a case for a new leader or uh, to elevate the status of a leader who's been befallen. Well, and as you were talking about Washington and Lincoln, I immediately thought about the National Mall and how the, the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial, you know, are in alignment with each other and, and sort of telling that same narrative arc. Yeah. And, it, you know, part of the research that I did on the Washington Monument, you know, I, I, th- I found it very interesting that, and, you know, people have probably seen the photographs, but the Washington Monument, you know, the construction gets halted during the Civil War, and you have a half-finished monument to George Washington. Uh, and then by the war's end, uh, they'll start finishing it. Uh, they don't finish it until the 1880s. But if you look at it today, you can see the discoloration, uh, you know, where they stopped construction. Uh, so while they were literally building a, a monument, an ode to Washington's memory, a war interrupted. Yeah. Um, so even... Even this monument has that marker of how the historical context of that moment, the surrounding circumstances, were changing even that physical landscape 
of how we remember people. Sure, exactly. Well, as Mountain Vernon becomes much more accessible to the public uh, through the uh, under the auspicious of uh, of John Augustine Washington the Third, how how else are people trying to commodify Washington's memories? I'm I'm, I'm thinking uh, off the top of my head about the example of the canes that people are selling, but um, could you talk about um, the Washington canes and, and other ways that uh, people are consuming? Washington through um, material purchases and material culture. Yeah. So I, you know, I think today, you know, it's obviously a lot different when people go to a historic site and, you know, what they want to take to remember. And I think most people, you know, they take lots of pictures and, uh, you know, maybe they go to the, the gift shop afterwards and they might buy something small. Uh, and that's probably the vast majority of people, but you know, there are no gift shops, uh, in the 19th century Mount Vernon. So what a lot of people were doing is they were simply just taking things. Uh, they were <laughs> breaking off tree branches. They were, uh, I found one instance where a gentleman said uh, that he saw another man uh, scoop up three barrels full of dirt. Uh, he wanted to take dirt home with him. Um, <laughs> I, I found instances where uh, enslaved people were selling uh, fruit uh, from the upper garden, uh, or they were doing bouquets of flowers for visitors, or they were selling buttermilk. Um, so there, there's sort of like a tourism industry that's happening here uh, with the enslaved community that comes after Washington's death, mm-hmm. uh, where they're trading stories uh, for gratuities, um, but they're also selling things like the Washington cane. Uh, this became probably one of the most popular things because, you know, it, it it did have you know other purposes because canes were uh, a popular uh, signifier of wealth and social status in the 19th century, and uh, you know this idea of having a piece of wood from George Washington's estate, from the hill where the tomb was, and fashioning it into a cane uh, was was a, a pretty big thing. Um, you know, I found instances where there were gifts given to major leaders where it was you know basically a Washington cane. Um, and then there were also less popular instances where someone really tried to commercialize it. Um, there was a man named James Crutchett who worked in Washington, D.C., and he actually entered into a contract with John Augustine Washington III to harvest wood from the Mount Vernon estate and then to uh, fashion that wood into a variety of different wood objects, uh, wood bowls, wood medallions, um, and you would get a certificate of authenticity. Um, and, and, and that was, you know, his business ultimately it didn't do as well, uh, because as it turns out, uh, people preferred buying things from the site. They preferred being there on site. Uh, and it seemed like they were a little bit less apprehensive about those types of things, mm-hmm. um, when they were actually at Mount Vernon buying them from, uh, enslaved people or, uh, from the Washington family. Well, this is probably a good time to remind folks who may come to the estate when we're back open, please do not take anything, especially trees uh, or, or three barrels of dirt uh, home with you. There are, there are plenty of things to buy in the modern gift shop. Um, <laughs> well, and I will say, if you go to the gift shop, you can still buy things that are made out of Mount Vernon wood. That is true. Um, and every, every, every now and then, you'll probably see this. It'll either be in the news or, or Mount Vernon will publish this information. Uh, when a, a tree 
that dates back to the time of George Washington uh, falls on the estate. Um, you know, some of that wood is repurposed and reused for other things. Um, and I know that Mount Vernon does use some of that wood uh, to sell things in the gift shop. So, um, you know, it's not that far removed uh, from some of the things that people were doing in the 19th century. Sure, exactly. And that was a nice way to put in a plug for the gift shop here on the program, which we don't normally do, but this has <laughs> sort of worked out right now. Perfect. You, uh, you mentioned <laughs> the fact that enslaved people are uh, a part of this story and a part of this narrative and, and that they are talking with visitors, they are uh, cultivating uh, uh, Washington's legacy, they're communicating uh, the past. Uh, can you give us a sense of, of, of the kinds of stories they're telling and, and whether or not the people who are telling these stories were actually uh, people known to Washington, whether they, they were actually enslaved on Mount Vernon at the time that he was there, and whether they are, are telling, uh, to the best of our knowledge, authentic stories? Sure. So, uh, you know, one of the things that you have to keep in mind is, you know, a lot of these accounts that you're reading, these are white visitors in the 19th century. Many of them are affluent. Um, so the lens that they see the world and how they see African-Americans, how they describe them or portray them, you know, we have to be critical with those sources uh, because, you know, sometimes you wonder, well, is an enslaved person actually saying this? Or is this person embellishing it? Um, so what I did was I, I tried to find as many instances as I could and then just try to identify patterns and, and see if there was some consistency. And what I found was, uh, you know, by the 1850s, some of these steamboats uh, say that they're bringing, you know, 500 people a week, uh, upwards of 500 people a week to Mount Vernon. Mm-hmm. And I just asked myself, well, if there's 500 people there a week, who are they speaking with? Sure. Because, uh, you know, the, all these people are wandering around the grounds and the Washington family uh, generally doesn't really want anything to do with them, at least until John Augustine Washington III. You know, who is talking to the visitors from, you know, 1802 to 1850? And what I surmise based on these visitor accounts was that oftentimes they would befriend either an overseer, a gardener, uh, but more often than not, an enslaved person. And, uh, and it makes sense because these would have been the people primarily working on the estate, living on the estate. Um, they would have been, uh, you know, they would have run into these people uh, on the roads or uh, on one of the outlying farms. They probably would have first asked for directions to figure out where George Washington's home was because mm-hmm. it was the, the estate was pretty confusing, especially if people had never been there before. Um, and even, uh, you know, with Bushrod Washington, he put in uh, at the West Gate these porter lodges, uh, which was really supposed to be sort of like the gatekeepers for the estate. Uh, and inside those uh, were enslaved families. And uh, what's really fascinating, I think, is that uh, most of these enslaved people were not people who belonged to George Washington. And uh, Washington actually, in his will, uh, he freed one man immediately, uh, William Lee, who mm-hmm. had served with him uh, alongside him in the Revolution and beyond. And then he had provided for the freedom of the other 123 people he owned in his own right. And uh, the stipulation was that those people would go free when Martha Washington died. 
so, um, you know, some, some of them do stay in the area, uh, like Samuel Sambo Anderson, uh, but many of them leave. And when Bushrod Washington inherits Mount Vernon, he has to bring his own transplanted enslaved community in. Uh, and it's the same thing with John Augustine Washington Jr. He's also going to bring in a new community as well. So we're seeing constant change in, in these communities that are brought in to run Mount Vernon. And the further away we get from George Washington's death, the less likely that any of them had any type of knowledge or relationship with George Washington. But what's incredible is that's not, <laughs> it's not the impression you get uh, from these visitor accounts. In fact, some of these storytellers, they're very animated. Um, they, they are able to connect themselves, even though it doesn't seem like it's mathematically possible in terms of their age, but they're able to talk about being there for Washington's funeral. Uh, probably the most common one that I came across was this, this idea that they were the last servant of George Washington, oh, yes. uh, which I found multiple instances. So I guess that means there were multiple last servants. Um, but I, I think it gets to this point that, you know, African-Americans were actually playing a major role in shaping Washington's legacy to white visitors in the 19th century Yeah, because they were the primary storytellers. And yes, sometimes I think those stories were probably a little embellished. Uh, sometimes they probably uh, took advantage of visitors' gullibility. Um, and sometimes, you know, I, I think they also did things because there were gratuities uh, involved where people were tipping them as well. Uh, but I do think that it was one of those times where they had some degree of agency mm -hmm. uh, and otherwise, uh, you know, living a life of enslavement where there was none. You know, I think... Uh, I think probably the, the last thing I'll add with that is, you know, I found it particularly interesting that they don't talk, they really don't talk that much about uh, Washington freeing his slaves. Uh, the only time it really comes up is when one of the Washington family members, uh, like Bushrod Washington, for example, uh, when he decides to sell slaves, then uh, you see newspaper accounts where enslaved people are talking about uh, you know, Bushrod Washington, why couldn't he be more like his uncle uh, and free as enslaved people? So it's very interesting how they're able to sort of uh, weave in the message about Washington and emancipation, uh, but also they play into certain Washington legends because, you know, there's, there's, there's things to profit from it. Well, it is a, one of the more interesting facets of the book, I think, is the ways in which the enslaved community there uh, really take control of the narrative. Uh, and it, as you point out, yes, uh, sometimes there's embellishment, sometimes there's not, and sometimes uh, there are individuals who are trying to claim the mantle of, of the last servant. Uh, but they're really shaping the legacy and, the, and what a lot of people are taking away from Mount Vernon when they're making this civic pilgrimage to Washington's tomb and to the grounds and whatnot. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I think the other thing that really struck me, um, you know, as I was... As going through these visitor accounts is that it, it seems like that at least based on how these accounts are written, that the enslaved people knew what they were doing and that they participated in it because for some reason, visitors seem to respect them or, or pay some type of social deference to the idea that they were the last servant of George Washington. Sure. Uh, it, it's kind of interesting to see the reactions between the two groups 
as they interact. And uh, one of the arguments I make is that, you know, Washington, because he had become this figure of democracy, this idea of, of everybody having claim to something, um, you know, it seems like most visitors don't really question this idea of them knowing George Washington, them having a relationship with George Washington. Uh, they just sort of assume that they're being told the truth. Uh, and I think it, it, it speaks to the, the broader trend of, you know, it wasn't just uh, elite, affluent people who believed that George Washington was one of them, uh, that there were all different types of groups who believed that they shared something in common with Washington and that they could be part of this legacy-making process. Well, I think that's a great point, and, I, and that's a good way uh, to move into the discussion in the last part of your book about the, uh, the birth of the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, who ultimately purchased Mount Vernon. Uh, because as you alluded to earlier, again, this tension emerges nationally about who should control Mount Vernon, who should control Washington's body, who should control his memory. And in the midst of that debate uh, and of that kind of chaos, the MVLA really emerges with a plan uh, to, as they put it, preserve uh, George Washington for the American people. So you know, what's what's the kind of context in which the MVLA emerges and, and how do they actually... Um, how do they pull this off, and, and why do they do it? Is, it? is it at the point where Mount Vernon and uh, J.A.W. III no longer want to run uh, the estate, uh, either for personal reasons or, or financially, or you know, how does that all play out? Well, for some time, John Augustine Washington III had been entertaining the idea of selling the property. Uh, but you know he had made it very clear that he would only be willing to sell the Washington family home and tomb and outlying buildings if it was to some type of government entity. So whether it was the state of Virginia or whether it was the federal government, um, it's really interesting because then you start seeing these rumors swirling in the newspapers and you can't help but wonder sort of who's, who's placing these rumors in the newspapers uh, about, you know, um, foreigners might buy uh, the property if somebody doesn't step in. Um, and, and, you know, what will Americans do if they're being, you know, charged admission by a foreigner to visit uh, the tomb of the father of his country? And uh, so it seems like every time one entity gets interested in buying it, then the other one immediately jumps on board. They debate and bicker, and then it never actually comes to fruition uh, because either John Augustine Washington III doesn't agree to the terms um, or uh, those two different Hold the political power uh, when they when they realize the other one isn't going to get the property, they just sort of drop it. Mm. Um, and this leads us then to the creation of a private uh, outside organization uh, by women to raise the money and to purchase the estate on behalf of the American people. And it's done. Uh, you know, it started. The movement is started by their leader Ann Pamela Cunningham and. Uh, you know, she, she's a fascinating figure, uh, because, you know, she, and I, and I think the ladies, uh, organization for, for quite some time, you know, the story has always been that, you know, we were, it was a very national minded movement and, uh, you know, we wanted to do this for the country. Uh, but you know, this was an organization also created in a very turbulent political time in the 1850s. Uh, so, you know, the fact that her call goes out to women of the South first, uh, and, and that really it started it, the early structure is to be much more 
uh, with Southern women in place who are, who are able to throw their influence uh, behind uh, their husbands or to use their wealth. Um, you know, only later does it get opened up to Northern women and it does become a national organization. So, you know, we can't take that away, uh, but it is important to know that, you know, this was an evolution, you know, just, just like Washington's memory, just like his legacy, uh, just like the ownership of the estate, it was an evolution. And uh, when Anne Pamela Cunningham realized that it would be much more beneficial to have a national organization uh, with networks of women uh, in, in all across the country who can also help fundraise, who can throw events, uh, who can get orders like Edward Everett on board, um, you know, they have much more leverage and much more bargaining power uh, if they go to John Augustine Washington III and they're able to produce the money. And, and that's what they're able to do. Um, you know, in 1858, I believe they signed the contract. Uh, and by 1860, you know, he turns over uh, the transfer of the property to the Mount Vernon Ladies Association. And it's, it's a pretty remarkable uh, thing because, you know, there have been questions about the government purchasing Mount Vernon back to shortly after George Washington's death and Congress was never able to get it done. And then lo and behold, you know, 60 years later after Washington dies, it's this group of women mm -hmm. uh, from across the country who are able uh, to create an organization to raise the money. Uh, and, and I just think it's so fitting that, you know, the language they use, they talk about buying this, uh, you know, so this can be the property of the nation. Right. And, it's part of the reason why I use that as the, as the, the title of the book, uh, because that phrase, I, I kept seeing it throughout the 19th century. People kept talking about George Washington as the property of the nation. And, you know, I just had to really think about, well, what does that mean? You know, what does nation mean? What does property mean? And, and how is Washington the property of the nation? And how does that fit into our own understanding of what, American identity is how we define ourselves, how we define our national character, and how we define Washington. And, uh, you know, the ladies are able to use that language very effectively, and they're able to get the job done. And still do. And they still do it every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we'll close on this question then. You know, what do you think are the ways in which that we now still contest Washington's legacy and, and his memory? Well, you know, I, I think in in more recent events, um, and, and this is this has come up, uh, I think, in part of our national dialogue about the Civil War and uh, commemorating uh, Civil War leaders, leaders of the Confederacy. Um, I know for me uh, here in Virginia and in Arlington, uh, you know, a lot of debate about uh, Washington and Lee High School. It's now Washington Liberty High School. Um, there used to be a, a Lee Highway that uh, headed south through Alexandria, and now it's uh, Richmond Highway. Um, so, but I mean, it just goes to show you that you know these these debates about legacy and memory—they're always going to be happening because we're always going to be doing these types of things where we revisit our past and we decide whether or not you know is that something that we should be honoring or commemorating. Or is it something that we should be honoring or commemorating someone else? And it, it's an ongoing debate. Uh, I think with Washington, uh, you know, he hasn't gotten the same treatment as, say, a Thomas Jefferson. 
Um, he hasn't gotten the same treatment as a James Madison. Um, and he certainly hasn't gotten the treatment of, say, a, you know, a Robert E. Lee uh, or, or any of the figures of the Confederacy. Uh, and, I, and I think a big part of that is that Washington is not solely defined uh, by one thing. You know, he's, he's not defined uh, just as a slave owner. Uh, it, but it seems like that's how most people have seen Jefferson. Uh-huh. Um, and I don't know. I, I think part of it is probably has to do with Washington and his emancipation uh, of enslaved people. Uh, I, I do think that that was one of the things he was thinking about. Uh, you know, in retirement, certainly he had, he had brought up this idea of if there was a way to end slavery by legislation, then that should be the best course. Um, you know, his thoughts on slavery evolved and changed after the revolution. Uh, I think he also thought that it was economically inefficient. So, I mean, like there were, there were a number of different reasons why, um, in Washington, I think was really the only major founder who decided that he was going to free the enslaved people he owned in his own right. Uh, I find that remarkable that very few Americans in the 19th century talk about that. That's true. Um, but I think that does, that also tells us, well, uh, you know, if they're not talking about it, well, why is that? Mm-hmm. Because they don't want people to remember Washington for that deed. <laughs> uh, they want you to remember Washington for his leadership, for being the first president, uh, for being the general uh, the Continental Army. Uh, but that is not one of his accomplishments that people recognize. And it's because, it, it, you know, how uh, African-Americans were seen enslaved and free was very different. And it was not seen as a telling accomplishment. Versus now in the, in the present, when we talk about somebody like Thomas Jefferson, and for so long, you know, really has hung his laurels on the Declaration of Independence, and a lot of that has now, I think, been cast aside, and, and it's looked much more intently at Jefferson and his relationship with his enslaved community, Valley Hemings, and his decision not to free people and, and, and the divvying up of his estate. I mean, he, he lived a very different life and had a very different ending. So the important thing, I think, with any of these figures is to really remember that they were, they were complex people. Uh, they were living in a very different time, and yes, we can be critical of them, uh, but we can also still admire things about them. Well, I think that's a good place to end it right there. And and Matt, thank you very much for coming on the program. I'm glad we finally got to do this, uh, despite the uh, the circumstances uh, at the moment. And uh, I'm glad. Uh, I'm just sorry it, it you know it took uh, eight years for us to finally talk about uh, your work, uh, but here here we are now and. Uh, uh, You've written a great book. It's like, and, I, it's like I planned it the whole time. Exactly. You were, <laughs> you were just laying the groundwork. You know, I, I had no idea, but you knew exactly what you were doing uh, up there at Marquette all those years ago. So, <laughs> well, Matt, thanks very much. Uh, best of luck uh, while you're working from home. And uh, we look forward to talking with you soon and, uh, and uh, come back and see us. Thanks, Jim. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky. Our music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, you may do so by making a contribution to Mount Vernon. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org.
Thanks, and we'll see you next time.